You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Doug and Greg Stokes with Lanyap Podcast, and we're joined by another special guest today. We've got Joe Truey. And Joe's of Jefferson Capital Partners is a resident of the New Orleans area. Joe was really introduced to us a couple of years ago related to some direct investments, specifically in the space of opportunity zones and opportunity zone funds, which will be the purpose of our conversation today. But in a broader sense, Joe is a private equity investor and a partner at Jefferson Capital Partners. So Joe, I just want to jump just immediately into the program itself. And for those of our clients that haven't really studied or heard about Opportunity Zones or clients and friends, really, what is the program and why was it implemented into the tax code? First of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be here and have this conversation. You know, as we were talking offline, it's a program that came out with a lot of hoopla, seems like pretty early on and for a variety of reasons, which I'm sure we'll discuss, sort of lost its luster pretty quickly. But the original intent was really sort of a marriage of sort of both sides of the political spectrum. It was, you know, finding a way to invest capital in underserved communities and leveraging some sort of special tax treatment from the conservative side. And really more so than that, just finding a way to get what was otherwise idle capital, I think the, the number at one point was you know seven trillion of embedded capital gains off the sidelines and sort of out of sort of passive ownership and into more active methods of investing, really with the design of, as I said, creating jobs and investing in relatively underserved communities. So you know this is really born out of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. There were several iterations of the language and the policy that you know I'm sure we'll talk about. But yeah, it's really, like I said, a designed to get sort of both sides of the political landscape to join on economic development in otherwise underserved communities. Let's really just start there from the bipartisanship of the program. And typically, when, thought, when thinking about any changes in tax code, the conservative side of the aisle is going to want lower taxes, better tax treatment, more tax efficiency, et cetera. And the more Democrat side of the aisle is going to want more investment in these you know, urban communities. And so maybe let's talk about the marriage there. And then how does the program itself work? Right. So the way it was set up is sort of a federalism type program where you had sort of a top down application of law. And then within the sort of set criteria of, you know, I think it was the lowest 25% of census tracts and adjacent areas. But within that, each governor then was responsible for selecting the specific census tracts. And the way the program is applied is essentially you as an individual investor or high net worth investor, family office investor, have the ability to recognize a capital gain and invest in either a business fund or property. Got 180 days from the date you recognize the gain to deploy it in one of those three vehicles. And then there's sort of wonkiness within each of those that I'm sure we'll touch on. But the benefits are then 
threefold. One, there's a, there's a deferral of your capital gain on the original event. I think a lot of people kind of lose sight of that. And I'm, I want to make sure we come back to that point. The first benefit's the deferral. The way the program was originally written, there was a five and a seven-year step up. So if you held your investment for five years, you got a 10% step up in the basis. If you held it for seven years, you got a cumulative 15% step up in the basis. You do have a tax bill due on that original gain after that seven-year step up. But then the real benefit is actually after holding an investment for 10 years, if there's a subsequent gain on that gain, if you've held that investment for 10 years total, the subsequent gain is tax-free. Just an enormous potential benefit. Yeah. So I want to break this down and this is the opportunity zone tax law and get into the weeds here with tax law. But I think it's really important from an investment strategy perspective for advisors and then those clients that have really realized a major capital gain. So there's a windfall from a sale of a business, sale of a property, sale of an investment, all three of those, whether active or passive, Generally speaking, when you're making a sale like that and it's a big sale, there's a capital gain that's associated with that particular liquidity event. That capital gain typically would be paid, a tax would be paid, either short-term or long-term capital gains tax in the year that the event occurs, the liquidation event occurs. And the opportunity zone structure, the tax law, allows for that individual, let's say you had a million dollar gain, that individual not to pay tax in the year that the gain was realized, right? But to defer that gain for a period of time, ultimately you would pay tax, right? But that deferral, it occurs, you reinvest the gain into an opportunity zone fund, a business, a property, or just an operating company in general. And then after 10 years, if that business or property or operating company is successful, you can then resell your investment tax-free. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. There's a little bit of wonkiness and I'll try to keep this as high level as possible, but within the sort of second element of that program, the five and the seven years step up, because the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was, was passed through the reconciliation process. The OZ program was designed, I think the whole bill actually, had to be revenue neutral. And so what ended up happening is as much as it's a five and a seven year sort of nominal benefit, it's actually in practice a tax bill due on December 31st, 2026. When the original legislation came out, the bill was in 2017, and I think the guidance was actually finalized in 19 you could still get to the fifth and the seventh year benefit. You actually can't right now. And so you, if you were to make an investment right now, you would have the deferral, you would have a tax bill due December 31st, 2026, and not get the benefit of the step up. I'm assuming, I'm hoping, I guess, that Congress will at some point either carve out the OZ program or sort of rewrite that specific part of it. I just want to make sure that everybody's aware of the, the fifth and the seventh year benefit as it's written right now can't really be obtained or achieved. From the perspective of an individual who realizes large gain, the sort of simplest investment 
that they would do in terms of an opportunity zone and getting the deferral till 2026 and then the potential for tax-free growth on the actual investment would be to, and this is the most popular way of opportunities and investing is through real estate. How is it done from the standpoint of investing in a, just for clarification purposes, opportunity zones or those census tracts in, in lower income areas? In, I believe the entire central business district of New Orleans is an opportunity zone. And there are a lot of other major cities that have opportunity zones located within the city limits. How does it work from the standpoint of a business, like if an individual were to utilize an opportunity zone strategy to invest in business, how does that work? I think maybe to answer that question, maybe back up a bit to why you know, I think some of the OZ program lost its luster out of the gate was really, I think most people were intrigued by the idea of doing venture capital and private equity investing through the OZ structure. But really looking back on it, the first batch of guidance that came out just did not work from the individual company perspective. And to their credit, politicians and legislators did rewrite and revise and, and took comments from working groups to recast that legislation. That's, I mentioned it earlier, that's what came out kind of at the end of 2019. But from a, from a business standpoint, it's actually pretty simple. I think, unfortunately, folks sort of gave up on it, but it's really sort of a four-pronged test. You've got, certainly within those census tracts, that's the main point, but you've got a gross revenue test. So 50% of your gross revenue has got to be derived in an opportunity zone. There's actually four different ways to meet that test. You only have to meet one of the four. So it's a, a sort of services performed, hours worked, and that's a payroll that itself is two different tests. And then there's actually a facts and circumstances test, which we haven't had to apply yet. And I'm not entirely sure what that means, but it's out there. 70% of your tangible property has to be in a zone. It also has to be after 2017. So I've passed the, the actual legislation of, of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So, you know, new equipment certainly qualifies. If you're an asset light business, it's actually really easy to qualify. There's an intangible test. So 40% of your intangible property has to be used in a zone. And then a non-qualified financial property test, which is a 5% limit. You know, it oversimplifying, but it sort of means you can't set up a hedge fund and call it an opportunity zone fund. It does pose some challenges from a corporate structure standpoint, but it's otherwise pretty easy to meet that test. And so those are really the four tests. What's nice about it is there's sort of unlimited flexibility in terms of how you qualify. You, you're allowed to restructure, you're allowed to move a company, you're allowed to divest assets, move assets, buy new assets. You've got some time sensitivity in there where um, you've got some safe harbors to give yourself time to qualify. And so it's, like I said, it's not overly complicated. I, th I think the, the rub was, you know, a lot of folks just kind of gave up on it. And to be fair, because the first round of guidance really wasn't workable from a business standpoint. And this initially took off and still, I would imagine the very vast majority of opportunities and investments are in real estate. Right. The real estate has traditionally gotten just a better tax treatment than any other uh, investment vehicle. And the, most real estate professionals used something called a 1031 exchange and still do to this right. day. Why do you think real estate, first and foremost, was the 
asset class that really took off here. And where do you see, are there risks to the OZ program? I know this was bipartisan, but one of the things that we can see is just a change in law at some point in the future. And really, how does that impact some of these investments that are in OZ type designated areas? Right. Yeah. So to the real estate question, I think it's, you hit the nail on the head. And I think it was, is of the familiarity of the 1031 exchange program, you know, a lot of people already doing real estate investing could just say, hey, this is like a 1031 exchange with these subtle changes. Now, to be clear, we don't do any real estate investing. So I'm speaking out of school. I don't have much expertise in the real estate side of things. But it was just sort of, you've got a stable of investors that are already familiar with some tax treatment of real estate. And so just taking them from 1031 exchange to OZ is not so much of a leap. And also just the, the way the policy was written, it was, they sort of took that language and modified it to OZ. And it was pretty immediately workable from the real estate standpoint. From the private company standpoint, I think there's a couple of things at play. One, I mean, we've touched on it several times now, is just the first batch of guidance didn't work. And sort of two is kind of two sides of the same coin. One, it's much more of a individual and family office type of an investment vehicle where, you know, I think most of your traditional private equity and venture capital investors tend to be, you know, big pensions and endowments and and folks like that that don't have tax considerations. And so there was an education process, I think, for the individual and family office investor that maybe didn't apply in real estate. And then the other side of that, you know, your big private equity and venture capital funds have all the money they need. There is some brain damage and you know, policy and compliance that goes along with running OZ investments. And I don't know this definitively, but I suppose they just looked at it and said, I, we don't need to raise an outside vehicle. So we'll just keep doing private equity and venture capital investing as we've been doing it. Do you think it's commonly overlooked from the venture and private equity standpoint that even if they have a qualifying investment, they just don't go through the trouble or because of just lack of desire or just lack of awareness? I think so. I don't, I don't know that definitively. I haven't really had too many conversations to that effect. I think the folks that are doing OZ investing in businesses are doing it strictly in OZ investing. And I don't, I don't, I can't think of any, you know, larger P and VC funds that are doing OZ as a, you know, separate vehicle, a, a separate asset class or well, I think that's one piece that's really important here. There's a couple pieces. Number one, I think the familiarity with real estate, you understand the area that it's in. It's generally a downtown area that's considered an opportunity zone. You can it's a tangible property along the lines with what a fund manager or fund sponsor has been doing in that area previously. And so it's just a continuation of a strategy with a tax incentive wrapped around it is likely why real estate was popular. The other piece that you alluded to but didn't really mention is that generally the opportunities and program from a design standpoint for each one of these direct investments is different structure than just a typical investment in an operating company. And so a PE fund, private equity fund or venture capital fund would ideally have to carve off 
a direct investment into a new company that doesn't fit in their sort of window of, okay, this is my 10 companies in my fund. It's clean. It's easy. I don't have to report anything differently. They would have to carve off a new vehicle for this investment in this particular opportunity zone operating company. Is that is that generally right? I think that actually goes to, maybe I should have made this point too. It's you know, the 10-year time horizon is difficult on both sides. I mean, most private equity investors, we might have a 10-year fund life, but it's typically a you know, three to five-year hold period for a portfolio company. And then you know, on the individual investor side, we run into this all the time. And, and I mean, there's some interesting nuances to managing liquidity, but sort of look at it on its face and say, I don't want to hold this investment, any investment for 10 years. Yeah, unless it's real estate and you've got, you know, and it's in a good, somewhat good location, no opportunity zone. I think the negative connotation there is that it means it's in a bad part of town, right? And so that's the, I, I think that you can fight that on the real estate side. I think that's right. I mean, you're taking a look at an investment, you have to be pretty confident that that's going to appreciate in value over 10 years. And so when you're placing a company there, now there's the other piece too that is, and maybe we can get into selling what happens when you sell a company within that 10-year window. But I think that that's right. It's it's making the decision of a 10-year hold on a, a generally a small business operated in an opportunity zone. So right. maybe speak to that on the potential to sell something in the interim. Yeah. So I think the first thing we talked through really on both sides, because you got to get the company itself comfortable with the sort of OZ limitations and how it works, but but certainly on the investor side as well. So I think it's important to understand, you know, as much as it's a 10-year hold to maximize the benefit, you still are able to take dividends, distributions, those are, I mean, taxable as they otherwise would be. But there's an interesting fastened feature of the OZ program, and it mirrors the real estate language, the sort of concept of a cash-out refinance in real estate parlance, but it's sort of leverage distribution concept in an operating company is much the same where you could theoretically, let's say, over-equitize an operating company and then, you know, after 24 months, take a leverage distribution and you haven't ruined any of the OZ benefits and any of the time horizon doesn't reset the clock or anything like that. And you could have, you know, a decent amount out of your money back. And that that fall, falls along the lines of, of the cash out refinance where that is tax free. It's just a return of capital. There's a lot there's a lot to unpack there and I don't want to get too far out yes. of my skis on that. But none of us are CPAs and tax attorneys. So I think we'll, you know, consult your other advisor yeah. before moving forward with the strategy. But I think that it's important what you just said. You can basically, let's just say make a hundred percent equity, just for simplicity's sake, 100% equity investment without any debt on a company or a piece of real estate, for example. And what you're saying is after two years, then refinance that or recapitalize it with some debt and get some money out tax-free. So if you put a gain in there, you can get some of that gain back, theoretically get some of that gain back early, even though the investment is locked up for 10 years. Theoretically is a good word. Yeah. yeah. And certainly, yes. I mean, and also as you're growing a business, right, the enterprise value of that business is growing. Um, it would sort of be the same concept of cash out refinance. You can 
take enterprise value loans. Um, and then, I mean, like I said, setting aside all of that wonkiness, you know, any sort of dividend or distribution can happen in the ordinary course, just as it otherwise would. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, I think it's important to understand that there is, you know, you're not writing a check and hopefully give you some money back in 10 years. There are, there are a lot of ways to, you know, return capital in the interim and, and different tax treatments along the way. So this, I think, gets down to the the brass tax, which is what is the actual benefit in dollars and cents? And I don't know if you've done this math before or not, but okay. So let's say you realize a, a million dollar gain and you have two options with that million dollar gain. You either pay the tax and invest it elsewhere, or you roll that gain into a opportunity zone fund. So you preserve the gain, the full benefit of the gain. So the full million dollars goes into an opportunity zone fund or the net, let's say 700,000 goes into just a taxable investment. You hold that for 10 years. The million dollar opportunity zone investment and the $700,000 taxable investment both grow at a sort of a pre-tax same rate of return. Have you done the math on what is the actual benefit? And we've done this just as a back in the envelope before. So if you haven't, we can help there. But what's what's your estimate of a enhanced rate of return or internal rate of return for the Opportunity Zone Fund? So I'll sort of punt on the specific question. We've calculated a couple of the sort of standard objections that we run into, and I can sort of walk you through the analysis and a sort of qualitative level with a few numbers mixed in. Not to ignore the question specifically, there are a number of calculators out there that you can run exactly to the penny your situation. But I think the two calculations we have run are one, that the, the objection was, I'd rather pay the tax bill now because in the future, in 2026, I expect capital gains to be significantly higher. And so I'd rather just pay the bill now and not have to face a 40%, 50% capital gains rate. Check the math. But even if you were to face a, I think we ran it at a 40% capital gains rate in 2026, you would have to almost lose money to do worse by investing in an OZ fund. I think that if you generate like a two or 3% IRR, you're still better off investing in an OZ fund versus even paying a 39% tax rate in four or five years. That that may have changed. We ran that a couple of years ago. One speaks to the time value of money. Two speaks to, we touched on at the very start of this conversation, the compounding effect of not paying that upfront tax bill, that sort of 30%, 23, 25% hole that you dig for yourself in the very first year is powerful. It's letting that money go to work day one is a big effect. The other calculation we ran, and we, we sort of touched on this a little bit, and maybe backing up to a comparison to the 1031 exchange concept, comparing and contrasting to a 1031 exchange, in the OZ world, you only have to roll your gain. In a 1031 exchange, you obviously have to roll basis end gain. And so we had the interesting idea of, okay, well, if you roll your gain into an OZ fund, what do you do with the basis? You know, we at Jefferson Capital have other private equity vehicles 
you know, you could put your basis in those. And, you know, so your basis goes in a traditional taxable private equity fund, your gain goes in an OZ vehicle. And, you know, fast forward a few years, your private equity fund generates new gains. Those go into new OZ funds. Your OZ fund after, let's call it 10 years after you've maximized the benefit, rolls back into traditional private equity. We ran that sort of a a simulation of really sort of a 20, 30 year simulation of doing that. What's remarkable, I'll sort of leave the, the actual numbers off the table. What was interesting was there was a delta of, I think we used a million dollars in that scenario, the sort of OZPE combo strategy grows to, I think it was $56 million over 30 years if you assume a 15% IRR. And in the sort of taxable traditional strategy where every time you realize a gain, you're paying taxes and reinvesting and trying to accumulate, still assuming a 15% IRR, it grows to $39 million, which is still a ton of money. But there's a delta there of, well, I think it was $17 million in my example. What's interesting is if you calculate it, the actual taxes paid are only about half of that delta. And the other half is made up of what you know we might consider the opportunity cost of not investing what you had to pay in taxes and the compounding effect on that number. I think that that's the biggest piece that people don't realize with this program is the paying taxes immediately component versus deferring those taxes for five years and starting in the hole versus starting with the original number has a major impact on returns in this. We ran a similar analysis, but using a different thought process, we were proponents of what's called direct indexing and, and a lot of our clients use it. And we thought if we took a gain and invested that in an opportunity zone and took the basis and invested that in a direct index that generates loss year in and year out and use those losses, carry those losses forward to offset the gain at some point in the future, what would the after-tax benefit of a opportunity zone structure be in that particular component? And and it was something like a you know four plus percent per year annualized increase in return after taxes using opportunity zone versus not. That turns out to be a big number, like over just on a million dollars over a ten-year period. It ended up being, assuming the tax rates don't change ended up being somewhere in the neighborhood of about you know, five or $600,000 of net benefit to the opportunity zone investor versus the non. Now it comes with the cost of illiquidity really. And so people have to be comfortable with that and have to have liquidity sources elsewhere. But the reason we're talking about this today, because you know we're in it, I view this period that we're in now as a big liquidity period. There's a lot of private equity capital out there seeking a lot of businesses founders of those businesses, maybe boomers, for example, that are getting ready to retire and are looking for liquidity, need a way out. And what's the most tax efficient way to liquidate? Um, There's not a whole lot more tax efficiency that you can build into a plan than than using this program. And so that's why we're talking about today. I I don't know if you have comment on that or not. Yeah. You know, I think it fits nicely with our sort of core strategy. You know, I think we you know, in the in the private equity sort of hierarchy, we have always been on the 
you know, lower end of the lower middle market. It tends to be a lot of family and founder owned businesses. And, you know, for better or worse, there are a lot of what we call lifestyle businesses mixed in there. And, you know, when it comes to exiting, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, suggest that it's the number one concern, but it's certainly a concern. Like I don't want to sell my business because I don't want to pay taxes on an exit. And they're very much concerned with, frankly, we, in the deals we do, we see a lot of tax planning and, and structuring around taxes. And so we see it sort of from both sides of the transaction, I would say, and, and agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. I think, you know, the other element to just sort of private equity is maybe a shameless plug here, but in sort of times of chaos where I don't have to report earnings next quarter, you know, these are times of opportunity for us, uh, no pun intended, but, you know, you can sort of lean into the chaos and grab market share with, you know, private investment where you may not be able to in a public company that's the illiquidity trade-off, certainly. But we're doing that through our portfolio in OZ and non-OZ businesses right now, where we've been acquiring businesses. Uh, we're working on a couple of acquisitions right now, adding people. And so I think there's a lot of merit. Like I said, it's, we're seeing it sort of on all sides of the all sides of the table in the current environment. I want to thank Joe for his time and hope to have you back soon. And and I think that this is going to be a continued discussion as people get more and more comfortable with opportunities and investments. And we started really go down this path in earnest late last year, thinking that tax rates, you know, people were selling businesses and, and thinking that tax rates were going to change and wanted to do something with that capital. But it's something that's super interesting to us. And we're always in the market for improved tax strategies for those that don't have liquidity needs. And this is what we've seen, one of the best that's out. And Joe has been a great educator to us on this particular program. So thank you, Joe, for being here. Thank you, Joe. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.